You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. POTUS, the President of the United States, is often described as the most powerful person in the world. He is Commander-in-Chief of the largest, most advanced military, and despite rising competition from China, the United States still wields enormous economic power. Yet every modern president has run up against challenges and obstacles beyond the incumbent's control. And in fact, most presidencies have ended in disappointment, if not failure. Our guest today, Professor Jeremy Suri, is the author of The Impossible Presidency, which was published earlier this month. Dr. Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs at the University of Texas, is one of our council's favorite repeat guests. And every time I hear Jeremy speak, I wish I could turn back Father Time and be one of his students. Among the nine books he has written, Kissinger and the American Century is one of the best studies of the former Secretary of State, and I recommend it highly. Great to have you back. Well, thank you for having me on, Jim. So before we move to the present, I think it'd be helpful for us to recall how the first chief executive, that being, of course, George Washington, saw the position. So George Washington, who really creates the presidency as we know it, believes the office has one overriding goal, to unify the country. And for that reason, he refuses to join a party. And he sees his role as traveling around the country to convince citizens that they are part of a common enterprise called these United States. He sees his role as building a national infrastructure through Hamilton's economic plan. Washington also proposes a national university. And he believes it's his job to put down pesky rebels who continue, and this was a problem before the Constitution to challenge the authority, and Washington is the first and the last president to lead American forces into battle himself in the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania. So he's unifying the country. Was his view universally accepted, or what were some of the opposing positions? So the anti-federalists, who themselves uh, opposed much of the Constitution, uh, believed this office was becoming too dictatorial from the start. They didn't like the idea that a national economic plan was going to give New York City and Philadelphia and uh, what would soon become the Bank of the United States' enormous influence, and Andrew Jackson would later criticize that. They saw the president's use of military power in the Whiskey Rebellion as dangerous. Many of the Whiskey rebels felt that they were fighting against unjust taxation, as their predecessors had. And then there were many around Washington who believed that he should use his office to associate the United States with revolutionary movements around the world. And Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, were the two most famous examples of this, they were quite disappointed that Washington believed the United States should remain neutral rather than a part of a worldwide revolutionary movement. Now, I know our listeners probably want us to jump right away to 2016, but we're going to keep them waiting for a moment. And this history matters. That's the whole point. The Impossible Presidency is the title of your book. Why is the position impossible in the moderns? Well, I think the position has become impossible for a combination of reasons. The first being that the presidency has taken on more and more responsibility. If Washington's job was hard enough, every successive generation adds more layers of responsibility to the presidency. In addition to that, the expectations grow even faster faster than the power that the president has. But the biggest problem of all, actually, that really subsumes both of those is that the president is working with so many other power centers
dissenters at home and abroad. And even though he is the most powerful, when you add up the sum total of all the other less powerful actors and stakeholders he interacts with, there are so many veto points for every one of his actions, it's often difficult to get anything done. But when you say that, look at FDR. I mean, right. Didn't he tame the position? Absolutely. I argue in the book that FDR is, in a sense, the last great president. He creates the modern presidency as we know it, and he's the last person to master it. And what Franklin Roosevelt does, first of all, is he brings the American people together for a common mission. He uses the radio. He communicates a narrative to people. And he he builds new institutions around the presidency. Most of Washington, D.C., as we know it, is constructed during the New Deal and World War II. He constructs uh, the city and constructs the government in a new way to serve new purposes. The problem, why he's tragic, is because what he builds, he can just barely manage himself. And it will continue to grow after him, and we will have presidents who don't have his level of experience, and even if they did, they'd have trouble managing all of these institutions. You know, I like the fact that you use the word narrative, because I think one of the things that you bring up in the book is that it is a bully pulpit. Yes. And we've lost the educator-in-chief. Yes. Absolutely. One of the most important roles successful presidents play, and I try to show this in the first half of the book, is by not simply telling the American people what they want to hear, but helping the American people to aspire to something bigger than themselves. It's similar to what Henry Ford says, right? If he asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses not cars, right? And Abraham Lincoln redefines the United States in a new way that people aspire to thereafter. That's why the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural are such important speeches. Theodore Roosevelt does the same thing with an image of a progressive president. Or later landing on the moon. Exactly, and that's, what, that's exactly Kennedy's point when he comes to Rice University in Texas and says, we're going there because we need something to aspire to. It's a new frontier. We've lost that. Our communications today are much more about serving the immediate needs of different groups, special interests, rather than a larger aspirational vision for our country. So you see a problem with Twitter, I would suspect. I see a problem with Twitter, but I actually think we can sometimes blame the technology too much. I think our system is choosing people who are good at communicating that way, not in terms of narrative. Americans still want narratives. The problem is we're choosing politicians not for their narrative but for their ability to give us goodies for their particular special interest groups at a particular moment. But given the situation that we see now in the world, aren't presidents really at the mercy of events? Think back to yeah. George W. Bush. I mean, he entered office. He was going to be the domestic president, mm -hmm. work on infrastructure, mm -hmm. education. 9-11 mm -hmm. happened and changed completely. See, I think there's a lot to that, but I think there's another side to that story, Jim. I think presidents are confronted, and I show this in the book. I show this actually by reprinting some of their Calendars. They're confronted with an inordinate number of real crises with lots of dead bodies involved. But they also have an enormous opportunity in those crises to redefine the mission. And too often, they react rather than leading. So George W. Bush, I think, is a great example. After 9-11, he rallied the country, I think, brilliantly. But he didn't rally the country for a higher vision. He didn't bring us together. Students were coming into my office asking how they could contribute, how they could do something different. And all I could say was join the military. There's nothing wrong with joining the military. But there were a lot of other problems we had that we could have started to solve. We could have built a whole new infrastructure. And to a degree, we're paying for it now with uh, enormous debt. Absolutely right. So I see that as a missed opportunity. But what about 24-7 news coverage? The president is constantly bombarded that, that, and expected to react. Well, that's true. And I think the challenge is to not let that dictate your agenda, and too often it does. But I think one of the reasons it does is because often presidents don't have a holistic agenda. They come into office and they don't know what they're trying to achieve. Just as this was true for George W. Bush, we should say, it was also true for Barack Obama. I don't think he actually had a fully formed foreign policy. He didn't know what he wanted to achieve. Unlike someone like Franklin Roosevelt or even Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, Obama arrived and he really didn't know what kind of world he wanted and he thought he could make a series of pragmatic transactional choices. 
And that allowed this 24-hour media coverage to define him rather than his defining the space he was operating in. Well, let's go back to your book for a minute. And you write, the inherited presidency is no longer the correct presidency for the 21st century. What changes do you propose? I think we can think of a variety of changes. First of all, we need a new electoral system. We're choosing presidents the wrong way. We're, in fact, choosing people who are ill-suited for the job. We're choosing people who are quick to react with one-liners rather than people who think strategically about a few big issues. That's one problem. Every one of our presidents, really, since Kennedy has been unprepared for office. Even Kennedy was really unprepared. Second, we really need to create institutions that provide objective knowledge. Now, I know there always is some bias, and I have nothing wrong with a free press, but we used to invest, going back to Thomas Jefferson, in the notion that a democracy needed facts. And we need to invest, it doesn't cost very much, in institutions like universities, like public television, public radio, like the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accounting Office, organizations that strive to provide information that matches with truth, not just with revenue. And then the third thing I think we need to consider, the most radical, is whether the office of the presidency should be split in two. We're the only major democracy that has a unified executive as one individual, and it's too much work. The founders saw it as a lot of work, but they believed the office was small enough at the time. So you're saying we should have a governor general and a prime minister? I'm saying, yeah, a president and a prime minister. I think France does it differently from Germany, which does it differently from India. But there's a reason why every other democracy does But these does are this. all good ideas. How would you have them take place? I mean, it'd be a constitutional amendment? We could start moving in the direction that I've just outlined by actually making the Speaker of the House more of a prime minister. How would we do that? Instead of having the Republican caucus or the Democratic caucus choose just based on their majority, which really allows the two or three or four most extreme members in a closely divided situation to actually have inordinate leverage, we could allow the speaker to be chosen from the House as a whole. President Trump's approval rating I read today continues to drop. It's at an all-time low of 38%. What advice would you give him? Well, it's hard to know where to start. I'd say two things based on this history, not talking about his politics, but about the office. I think he has to decide what are the two, three, four most important issues and focus on those and stop tweeting about other things, stop manufacturing crises of other kinds. And the second thing he needs to do is he needs to choose and populate the office of the presidency and the State Department and the Defense Department with qualified people, whether they agree with him or not. Competence matters more than ideology. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us. The Impossible Presidency, as I mentioned, it was just published about two weeks ago. Very timely, very important. Thanks for your recommendations. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>